Welcome and thank you for joining Save Our Sisters Unplugged. If you're ready to hear the survival to success stories of brave and intelligent women, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be letting our hair down and gaining insight into how women have overcome their life struggles. My name is Noreen Foy and I'll be your host. Now let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Save Our Sisters Unplugged podcast. This episode is a continuation of the fatherhood series that will be a yearly occurrence. As I've stated previously, women can learn from the male perspective because it is important and essential in the quest for men and women to understand each other. Our esteemed guest is a businessman, investor, and stockbroker. He is a board member of Tuesday's Child, which is an organization that offers support to families of children with behavioral challenges and a financial advisor where he gives families access to the same investment options as institutional investors. Even with all these tools in his tool belt, his major priority is being a loving husband and a very proud father. It is my honor to introduce my Jamaican brother from another mother, Mr. Arthur Anderson. Welcome to the Queen's Domain. Thank you, Nori. That's, that's such a great introduction. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You know, and thanks for being my guest on this podcast. I know you are super, super busy, but I know fatherhood is a, a very big job. You're fairly new to it, and I can't wait to hear your journey. <laughs> but before we get into that, I want to share something. Um, we talked about my trip to Maryland, and uh, I was invited to, the name of the church was called Bridgeway Community Church. It was in Columbia, Maryland, and the pastor was doing his Father's Day uh, sermon, and he was talking about a father's heart, and he shared his story of his relationship with his father, but at the end, like right before he closed out, he said, a father's voice affirms his presence, affirms his pleasure, and affirms his purpose for you. What do you think of that? That's deep. Um, he got real deep <laughs> on me. I didn't expect it. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I um, I have to think about that. So I'm a Christian, um, mm -hmm. and so I immediately think of my Father and Lord Almighty God. Um, the reason I go there is because I didn't really have a great relationship with my biological father. And so I can't really relate to his voice, but I can relate to the voice of God. And, and yes, it um, is a voice that, you know, makes his presence known. Um, and what were the other things you mentioned? So it says uh, a father's voice affirms his presence, affirms his pleasure and affirms his purpose for you. Right. So it immediately makes me think of God. He does make his presence known. He does. Um, let me know what is pleasurable in his sight and warns me that if I, you know, <laughs> go in certain directions that I want to go at times, that that might not be the best thing to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that is a very deep statement there. I would say with my voice to my daughter, she does know when I come into the room and she does know, you know, what makes me happy. She pays attention to those cues, I guess, when I speak. So, um, yeah, not really sure what else to say about that. I think you answered that perfectly, actually. You know, the fact that you related it to your Christianity is exactly where I was going to go with it. You were spot on. <laughs> you were spot on with that answer. 
So tell us a little bit about your family dynamic. Okay. Who's in the house? All right. So in my household, my family is my beautiful daughter, Evelyn, and my lovely wife, Deidre. And then there's me, uh, the husband in the household, Arthur Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the head honcho, huh? (laughs) What's it like living in a house with two women? Uh, So it is... It is life. It has its joys, uh, but it also has its challenges. I'm um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so what were your initial thoughts about fatherhood? So honestly, I couldn't wait to be a father, um, but I did want to make sure it was at the right time. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to have a child too early where I wasn't financially stable to support a child right. and I didn't want to have a child too early where I wasn't um in a committed relationship before having a child. So both of those things happened when I was, you know, able to have uh Evelyn. So that is one of the things that I really uh liked that I did wait. Um one of the things I um don't like about waiting to that point is that I am older now. So I'm 43 with a four year old. And uh I don't have as much energy as she does. I don't think anyone has as much energy as a four-year-old. Give yourself some grace. (laughs) Thank you. And you're new, you know, you're new to this fatherhood thing. So walk me through the first moments when Deidre told you, hey, I'm pregnant. What was your initial (laughs) thoughts about that? Oh, wow. Um, So happiness, um... I was elated. I um, immediately had visions of a son. I have a daughter, but I immediately had visions of a son. But for some reason, I knew God was going to bless me with the daughter. <laughs> Why? Why do you feel so? I, I don't know. It, it's hard to explain. Um, I guess the only thing that I could say is that I want to have um, a lot of kids because I love kids. So, so most of my life, for as long as I can remember, I wanted kids. I think I was seven years old thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to be an adult and have kids. Oh my gosh. That's not what I was thinking when I was seven. (laughs) So I wanted to have about six kids. (laughs) Most people's eyes pop out when I say that. (laughs) No, I'm not judging Um, because I wanted to have six kids as well. Three boys, three girls. That's what I wanted. Exactly. That's what I wanted. An even number of Mm -hmm. boys and girls having the boy first because I grew up in a household where I was the baby and I had nothing but older sisters. So, <laughs> so I thought it was important to have the boy first. And so when Deidre told me she was pregnant, I wanted a boy. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, you know, God placed it in my mind that, hey, this may not be a boy. And I was like, <laughs> huh? Yeah, well, I, I guess if it's not a boy, at least bless her with you know, beautiful eyes and eyelashes. Cause, and I know that sounds vain, but um, when I was growing up, people complimented me on my eyes. I have light brown eyes and people, you know, complimented me on my eyelashes. You know, I'm like, well, all right, well, at least give her that portion of me. Mm-hmm. And, and he did, you know, I had a beautiful daughter with better eyes than me <laughs> <laughs> and beautiful eyelashes. And she is just gorgeous. <laughs> She, oh. she she looks like her mom. Um, her mom would say she looks like me. Um, but yeah, like she has these hazel eyes 
that depending on like what color clothes she wears, uh -huh. it, it brings out like different colors in her eyes. So her eyes can look blue, they can look green. And awesome. it, it's like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's always important, I guess these days, it's always important for women to have the right amount of eyelashes and eyebrows. <laughs> Yeah, she won't need to like get any extensions <laughs> or anything like that. And, you know, I'm a fan of natural beauty. And so, you know, she has it. <laughs> so I, I got to keep my gun handy for when she becomes a teenager. Oh, a teenager, maybe like a middle schooler, because things are different than when we were growing up. Oh, man, you, who are you telling? So she's in daycare, but it's a Montessori school. Mm -hmm. And she's already talking about wailing this and wailing that. And it's like, who is this Waylon? <laughs> Uh-oh. She definitely, you know, thinks about this young man a little too much. So, you <laughs> for know, that's your liking. for my liking. Yes. <laughs> that's funny. So did you guys have like a birthing plan after you find out you were pregnant? You like, okay, this is the kind of delivery I want since there's so many options out there now. Yes, I um, realized that it was important to have a birthing plan. So we collaborated to put one together. I think it was actually more, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but I think, you know, it was more my thought of having specifics in the birthing plan. Um, and I don't know, maybe, um, maybe it's because the portions of the birthing plan that I had interest in, you know, were her interest. So that's what, probably why it feels like I had more thought into it, but um, yeah, we had a birthing plan and it detailed in there, you know, everything down to, hey, the doctor needs to use non-latex gloves just in case the baby's allergic. Mm. <laughs> no, that's so, important stuff so, because yeah. you just never know. Exactly. So I did some reading. I'm not a big reader. I love movies, but I did some reading. <laughs> um, uh, What was it? What to expect when you're expecting and all of that. Um, I did some research on it online. And one of the things that I had researched was black babies. And so it appeared that there was an uptick in um, eczema with, you know, oh. black babies. And so one of the things that they said could possibly um, spur that eczema would be latex gloves. And so I said, well, I don't want my baby to have eczema. Let me make sure that the doctor uses non-latex gloves. And there's so much in this world out there that can be harmful to our Black babies and youth. And yeah, it's scary. So you, you try to take precautions to, you know, make sure that yeah. they have the best life possible, right? Um, so it was uh, non-latex gloves. We interviewed the obstetrician to, you know, make sure that they had experience delivering Black babies. Mm -hmm. Um, my wife thought I was crazy. Like, how dare you ask the doctor that? No, I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think it's invasive at all. And seeing as though there are so many more deaths among black women right after delivery, you have to really do your due diligence, you know, yeah. and, and being a first time parent, I applaud you for actually really looking into that because those are things that I never even thought about. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking everything that they're delivering the babies with it's safe for the baby. So it's good that you read up on that and figure that out. Um, one of the things that I just lost my train of thought, but 
Well, actually, I want to bring something else up. So you, you think of that question while I bring this up. So I have a family member who had a son a couple of years before me. My nephew, um, when he was born, he um, had severe constipation. And the doctors, you know, were trying everything. Now, medicine today, they say you don't give them, you know, water or juice or anything during the first year of life. But they were like, well, give them prune juice. And it's like, wait, this goes against what, you know, they're saying. Yeah. So they're trying everything. And um, it turns out he was allergic to the baby formula. Oh, and they wow. just needed to switch his baby formula. And, you know, that solved the problem. And so um, it turns out or at least my experience is a lot of black babies are allergic to a lot of the baby formulas that's out there. So the hyperallergenic formulas are better for black babies in my experience, because I have a best friend who also needed to use hypoallergenic um, for his daughter. And um, my daughter eventually went to the hypoallergenic formula as well, because mm -hmm. the formula she was on was bothering her as well so it was something that her system just wasn't agreeing with um so she went to hyperallergenic so in my opinion through my life experiences and everybody is different but I think black babies are better on hyperallergenic formula if you do formula because of course breast milk is always oh, better yeah, definitely breast milk is better you know and so my question that I remembered you said she's three Evelyn is three she's four now She's four now. So that means you guys delivered during the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, well, wait a minute. Let's see. So. Or maybe at the time, right, right, right before, before. Right okay. before. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so you pandemic guys missed happened. that window. Pandemic happened right, you know, during her first year of life. So, yeah, it was um, pretty interesting. <laughs> we, um, we went through a lot. Yeah. So she was born in May of 2019, the pandemic. Okay. Um, you know, started late 2019, early 2020. So. Right. Right. It started late 19. We heard about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Beginning of first quarter of 20. Yeah. So we didn't have a big turnaround time, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how did you support your wife during the pregnancy and childbirth? How did I support my wife? Um, good question. So I was by her, you said during the pregnancy? Yeah, so, during um, the pregnancy and childbirth. So during the pregnancy, I um, tried to be the supportive husband, you know, um, getting the, you know, craving foods and <laughs> things like that, you know, being understanding. It was difficult because during the pregnancy, so I'm trying to be sensitive to women because, um, it's the right thing to do. It was very hard to cater to my wife. Um, so women can be a bit demanding when they're not pregnant. And um, they can be, I shouldn't say women. Uh, I have a wife. Yeah. So she, she's one woman. Uh, we were talking earlier and how you want what you want. Mm -hmm. And when things don't go your way, you know, you don't like it. And so my wife, um, she, you know, has a certain thing in her mind that sometimes she doesn't communicate and I can't read minds. And so it becomes mm -hmm. frustrating to communicate and, um, you know, to cater to someone when you don't know what it is that will actually satisfy them is very difficult. 
I don't know if I'm getting my point across. No, you're getting your point across because that's really what you were feeling in the moment. You're trying to be a supportive husband and father. And because none of you have been there before, you don't know what you really need and you don't know where you fit. Do you know who Devon Franklin is? Devon Franklin, I don't think so. Well, he's a marriage counselor. He was married to Megan Good. Okay. And so now he's been on one of my favorite shows called Married at First Sight. I love those human um, science projects. So I watch it because I listen to what the therapists are saying about relationships, marriage, communication. But the one thing that he said that stick out to me was unspoken expectations are a marriage killer. Essentially, you were probably trying to take her lead, but then she didn't really communicate what she needed. So you didn't really know what to do. So I could see how that could be challenging and you try to support her while she's pregnant. Now, I'm a vocal girl. I mean, I'm an introvert, but I like to express myself. And if I feel I'm not getting across, I write a letter so we can talk it through, step it out, see if we can come to some kind of a consensus between us. So maybe you guys can, for the next child or the next five children, (laughs) since you're just one down, you know, it might be something to consider that you know, you have to really voice your expectations because like you said, you're not a mind reader, neither is she. Um, But in order for your parenting to work, because now you're four years into this parenting thing. So fast forward to when she's a teenager and she wants to date and she wants to wear makeup and she wants to wear short skirts and, you know, interact with boys. (laughs) Exactly. You're going to need to be on the same accord for all of that. So getting it right when she's little now, when she's still in your hip pocket, you know, would be essential for a smoother parenting journey that's to come, right? Yes. So what has been the most rewarding aspect of being a father so far? The most rewarding aspect of being a father. I mean, every day is just a a new blessing. So I mean, I could go on about when she was a baby and just the smell of her hair, you know, put a Mm -hmm. smile on my face. And when she first walked or first talked or, you know, now she's she's in school and every day she's learning something new. Um, She's, you know, taking gymnastics class now and, and showing me how to do a four-year-old cartwheel. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely different than a 40-year-old cartwheel, that's for sure. (laughs) Yep, so I can't pinpoint one thing, so I I just don't know. No, that's fine. You know, I think you answered that just perfect. You know, and when babies are new, it's new to you. So yeah, you're smelling them, you're sniffing them, you want them to sniff you because you want them to recognize who you are. You wanted to hear your voice across the room. You know, when my granddaughter was born, I'd never seen anything like it. When my granddaughter was born, my son could just, I mean, she was a little tiny thing, just brand new out the box. And (laughs) all she had to do was hear his voice and she would raise her little head up to turn to wherever he was in the room. And that connection, I mean, they are like best friends. She's like eight years old now. And that is her best friend in the whole world. So those connections that you make earlier on, they really stick. So I had to really tell him, I said, you know what? When you're disciplining her, you have to be careful of the rhetoric you use because you don't want to groom her for certain conversations and certain tones of voices, you know, because a father teaches their daughter their worth. 
And when you have a young daughter, you have to really be careful how you're really disciplining them. Have you starting to do that with her yet? At four, she might have a little attitude. I don't know. Yes. So my wife and I, we're still working on the best way to do that because um, my wife and, you know, some other people are under the impression that they really don't know what they're doing just yet. They're still too young. You shouldn't um, physically discipline them. So I grew up on whoopings, right? Oh. You, uh... <laughs> we're, we're Caribbean folks. Yes, we grew up on whoopings. Yeah. And we and... don't subscribe to what your wife is thinking <laughs> at all. <laughs> and and so, um, uh, let's see. So First two years of life, of course, you know, I, I did not do any physical like discipline with my child. When she turned three, um, actually prior to turning three, I was chatting with a, another father, um, my best friend, and asking him his thoughts. Because I believe in, you know, whoopings and that's how you learn what you're doing is wrong and you don't do that anymore because you don't want to whoop it. Right. Um, and, you know, he says that he... Uh, would smack their hand for however many years old they are, right? So if they're two, two smacks. If they're three, three smacks, right? Mm -hmm. So when she turned three, that's when I began, you know, uh, smacking her hand if she did something wrong. Um, and I've recently stopped because my wife prefers we do more talking right now um, because she feels that Evelyn doesn't really understand right and wrong and what she's doing is wrong. And so... I eventually will go back to that, but right now we're not spanking her. We're doing more verbal interaction to get her to understand what she's doing, why she's doing it, um, what's the better way of doing it and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I half agree. <laughs> you know, I think studies have shown that kids know how to manipulate. Babies are smarter than we give them credit for. They catch on to things early on. And these young years between right where your daughter is at is where they learn a lot of those things. You know, that's why they said this is the perfect age to teach Spanish, teach different languages, to start correction, discipline, all of that. These are the perfect ages to do it. But of course, you know, every household has their way of dealing with it. And like you said, I definitely grew up with spankings. I spanked my children. But there's a fine line between spanking your children and abusing them. And right. I think sometimes people cross over to, well, if you're spanking them, you're abusing them and they don't understand what they're doing. But if you tell a child they can't have candy and they cry and whine, and if you give in, then every time they're going to do that because they see what the reward is. Right. You know? So it's a touchy area to spank or not to spank. It's a definite it touchy area for sure. So it how is. do you feel fathers can establish a strong bond with their children and maintain that connection as the child grows? So I think just, um, and I guess this is probably a, a cliche saying, but show up you know, just be there. Um, now I understand everybody works, right? So you spend eight hours a day or whatever away from your child. Um, and then there's, you know, some people who have to put in overtime, right? You may work weekends or whatever, but during the times that you can, you know, be there, be there. So what I do with my daughter is um, every night before she goes to bed, she sees me. She, um, you know, I'm, I'm either reading her a story um, some nights I'm, you know, giving her a bath. Most of the time my wife does it, but you know, some nights I'll, I'll do it. But every night before she goes to bed, she sees me. Um, and yeah, you know, just be there for her. 
Yeah, that's that's really good consistency. You know, and then, of course, they get into that routine where they expect you to come in every now and then and say, yeah, my daddy's going to come read me a story. And then sometimes they have requests. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So now that you're a new father, you're four years in, what are some effective strategies for balancing your work life? Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, my gosh. Work and life, because I'm a workaholic. Um, <laughs> not proud of that, but uh, it is what it is. It's just in my DNA to be hardworking, right? You know, mm -hmm. I'm Jamaican, you know, we work hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I do need to find a better balance with life, being there for my daughter. You know, well, one thing is, like I said, I, I put her to sleep each night. But, um, you know, every once in a while, we'll do fun things like um, uh, about a month ago, me and a couple of other dads, we took our kids to Legoland. There's a Legoland in Schaumburg, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, me and three other dads all from um, Evelyn's school. And we uh, took the kids to Legoland to hang out for a few hours and play with each other. And my daughter had an amazing time. We actually stayed longer than the rest of the kids. <laughs> you shut the place down. Exactly. Um, she fell in love with this area where you could build the cars out of Legos okay. and send them down the ramp. And then typically they break at the end of, <laughs> end of the <laughs> ramp. And then you build it again. She stayed in that area for over an hour. And hmm. yeah, so we had some fun there and she keeps asking to go back. So we had to go back one day. Hmm, maybe a future cat engineer. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So you went with other fathers. So is that kind of like your tribe? Um. Yeah, so I moved out to... um the Northwest suburbs and just trying to develop a, a community here. So um, I guess that will be my tribe. That was our first outing together. So I mm -hmm. can't really say it is the tribe just yet, but uh, yeah, just trying to have a community where because it takes a community, right? It takes a village. So um, you want to have people that you can talk to for one, if you have like questions about just hey, how are you raising your daughter? Because maybe there's some best practices that you can um, acquire. Or, you know, um, you get to know the person so that maybe they can babysit for you one day, right? So you yeah. and your wife could go out on a date and then vice versa. You take their kids so that he could spend some time with his wife, right? Because you yeah. want to make sure that, you know, everybody, not necessarily reciprocity, but if I want time with my wife, if I want another father to help mm -hmm. me out, I have to be willing to help him out. You know what exactly. I'm saying? So one hand washes the other. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. And you know, for some reason, <laughs> when society sees men out with their children by themselves, it's always like, a, oh my gosh, are you okay? <laughs> How are you doing? The, did you get any of that when you and your other male friends were out with your kids? Actually, we didn't. Um, but you're right. I do hear about that a lot, but we did not get that that day. Um, and I think it's because in general in society, people think of raising kids as a maternal thing to do. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, you know, that's just how society thinks. And um, I think kids do have a certain bond early, especially early on with their mother. Right. Yeah. And it is so during the first, I'll say two years 
maybe even first three years of life, it's hard for the father to really be out and alone with the child because the need for milk, right? We have to, you know, carry milk because we don't produce That's it right. for the child. Um, and just, you know, everything else that um, goes in, in a diaper bag, you know, having all of those things you have to carry with you to take care of a child if you go out and do something, right? Mm-hmm. And so after they get to be like three or four, like the main thing is like just making sure they're potty trained so that you don't have to really carry as much stuff out with you to go places. And then now you could take them to places like Legoland and things like that, which is easier for a father to do, um, you know, when they're older, like three, four, five, six, seven, as opposed to one and two, right? So yeah. But at four, when you're taking your daughter out by herself and she needs to use the bathroom, how are you maneuvering that? <laughs> yeah. So you got to take them into the men's bathroom or if they have one of those single, you know, bathrooms. But yeah, you take them into the men's bathroom and you go into a stall. So she has privacy and <laughs> you don't call attention to anything else in the bathroom because you don't want her looking and to start else. looking around <laughs> like close your eyes we're gonna go over here don't look around <laughs> but yeah it's not the hardest thing in the world um so I mean it is what it is because vice versa if a mother has a boy child they have to carry them into the women's bathroom and you know take them into a stall and have them use the bathroom there so it's the same thing in reverse yeah well we have kind of a different experience when we take the kids in the bathroom stall especially if we need to use the bathroom Mm -hmm. and they're done and bored and so while we're trying to use the bathroom they're trying to get under the door so that could be a struggle it could be interesting restroom trip so (laughs) I think I spent a lot of time just holding it because (laughs) sometimes it opened the door and you're not ready and (laughs) yeah yeah. Um, so I did run into an issue like that once. So that was kind of difficult. And yeah, you got to sternly talk to your child to make sure that they listen to you to not open the door or, you know, go under Crawl the under. stall or, <laughs> you know, don't touch that. Don't do that. You know, Oh my gosh, but, yes. but yeah, it's, um, yeah, that day was a little bit of a challenge, but I made it through, you know, <laughs> you made it through. <laughs> Lift the tail, got the t-shirt. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there's a stigma that says Black men are inefficient as fathers. What do you think about that? Um, So I think that that's incorrect. Um, I think that people are buying into the media hype and that um, then can, in turn, uh, create self-fulfilling prophecies. But I think uh, I think there are a lot of Black men out there that are amazing fathers and a lot of black men out there that will become amazing fathers. So I I don't, I don't really buy into that. I don't buy into it either. Um, As we know, no matter what the race is, there are men period that are inefficient as fathers, as mothers. And I think sometimes it gets to be more men because if there's a breakup during a relationship, the child generally goes with the mother. Right. And so then you have those mothers that put those barriers up between the father and the child. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's wrong. I don't think that that should be. Um, I do know that it happens. And, you know, sometimes it could happen without the child knowing it's happening. Right. So I, um, 
feel because society is built in such a way that if there's a breakup, the court systems usually side with the mother and kids go with their mother, right? Mm -hmm. So that can make a man feel a little defeated, right? right? Um, If the courts told me, hey, I can't have my child live with me and hey, now I have to pay all this money to this woman to, you know, raise my child and this woman doesn't want me to come around and I don't have the support of the courts, the legal system, then it's like, okay, what do I do, right? That can make you feel a little defeated. And then you may not put up the fight to come around. Um, And so I was raised in a single parent household. My mom raised me. My dad lived in the same city. I didn't see him that often. My dad died when I was 18, so I never really got to have a conversation with him to know what was going on between him and my mom, why, you know, he spent so much time away. So I don't know for certain whether it was his choice or whether it was like, hey, my mom was saying, don't you come around or something, right? I don't know. I was young, right? They didn't include me in that conversation. Right. (laughs) You were in a child's place. Exactly. And um. He passed away when I became an adult, so I didn't have a chance to have a conversation with him. So I went to his funeral. I mourned the relationship that could have been. You know, I didn't really know him as a person to say that I mourned the loss of him, but I mourned the relationship that could have been, right? Because I could have gotten to know him. I could have gotten to learn his perspective on what it means to be a man, a father, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. get that perspective. I didn't get that conversation. So I mourned that relationship. And it could have been where, you know, he just stayed away because it was like, hey, I'm paying child support. The courts are saying she's taking care of the kids. And, you know, he probably felt that he lost in that situation. Right. I don't know. Right. Or, But some people may say that, oh, no, he could have fought harder to spend time with you and you were his only son, so he should have been there and blah, blah, blah. I no longer hold any animosity towards my father. I guess I did when I was a kid a little bit Uh because I felt that he hurt my mother. Um, Not necessarily hurt me. I didn't really feel like he did anything to me, but I felt he hurt my mother. And so I had animosity in my heart for that as a kid. As an adult, I gave up on that animosity. Like, I don't know what happened, right? Right. But I did mourn the loss of not knowing if we could have had a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see how that could be tricky, especially from a child standpoint. You know, then right when you turn a man where you really need that manly advice and that manly guidance, he passed away. So you felt like you didn't have that. But did you have anyone else, any other male role models that were pouring into you? Um, so yes and no. Um, I say yes, because there were people at church that were around. Um, but my mom, you know, after she and my dad divorced, she never remarried or got into any like real relationship. So there was no like father figure in the household. Mm -hmm. Um, and growing up from childhood to young man prior to being an adult, I felt like I didn't need a father in the household. Okay. You know, as a young man, I felt I was the man of the house, right? You know, I need to make sure that things were taken care of. I got a job when I was 15 to make sure that 
additional money was coming into the house. And when I did go to college and get my first job, I'm, you know, giving my mom money to make sure that she could take care of things. Right. So I fell into that role rather quickly being the man of the house. Um, and I felt like I didn't need a father or any, you know, male figure to tell me what to do. Um, but I do think it would have been nice to have someone to talk to. Um, I'm a very spiritual person, so I talk to God a lot, but sometimes you need a physical person to, you know, bounce ideas off of. Oh, absolutely. Because no one knows everything. And I totally understand. I am totally opposite. I mean, I have my parents in my life, um, but you know my story. I believe I shared it with you. So it's like I didn't have them, you know? So the things that I've learned, I learned from watching other women, um, maybe some aunties, um, maybe some of mom's friends that were different. They move differently. And so some things just stayed. So it's like, Yes, just like you said, you mourn that relationship that could have been something greater. You think that if your father was still here, you'd be like really tight as an adult? Probably not, but at least I could have those conversations that I was uh, yearning to have. Yeah, I hear you. I definitely hear you. So you mentioned that you were the man of the house earlier on. And so you were out there making money and making sure mom had what she needed. Is that what propelled you to go into your financial field? Um, so not necessarily. So I guess I have to say no. Um, so my mom actually wanted me to be an accountant and I didn't want to be an accountant. Um, so I went to school for engineering. And my first real, quote unquote, real job outside of college, I was a validation engineer. Um, So I did engineering for a little while. I went into operations um, before going into finance. But I guess I've always had a gift for numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom, you know, taught me how to count. Um, I was telling my wife the other day um, that my mom used pinto beans and, you know, we just added (laughs) and subtract with the pinto beans. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's how I learned how to count and do math. And I excelled at math. I was amazing. I still am really good at math. So during college, besides, you know, during the engineering, I minored in business management in undergrad. And then in grad school, I did go back to get my MBA. So I concentrated in finance and entrepreneurship, Um, and I did corporate finance for several years before deciding that I wanted to be more personable with or deal more with people. I was making Mm -hmm. a Fortune 500 company, you know, lots of money helping them in um, corporate treasury, and I wasn't really fulfilled. And so moving into the financial services space, um, being a financial planner, I'm able to work with individuals and seeing the happiness that comes when you help someone get grant money to purchase their first home. So free money, you know, that it gives you joy or giving or helping someone get life insurance when they just had surgery and every other life insurance company is telling them they can't insure them and I help them get life insurance. Then it's like, yes, I'm helping society. And not only are they happy and smiling, it puts a joy in my heart. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's rewarding that rewarding and fulfilling, it seems. Yeah, it is. And I, um, I kind of got into this role because a cousin of mine was telling me 
that she knew a uh, registered investment advisor. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And um, <laughs> so she introduced me to him and we talked and he explained that, you know, it's pretty much, it, that's the technical name for um, a financial advisor or a financial planner or any other mm-hmm. any of these other names that you hear. The technical name is registered investment advisor. And so I met him and was like, you know what? Yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. That is really good that you had that introduction to that, because I do think that financial literacy, it is so important. And the trajectory of the economy should have everyone just scrambling to make responsible financial decisions. So how do you plan to introduce the concept of money and financial responsibility to Evelyn? Yeah, so she already has a piggy bank. Well, excuse me, <laughs> Miss Lady and a piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but yeah, as she grows and gets older, I'm going to teach her the responsibility of having that money, how if she spends it on candy, then that money is gone and she eats the candy, that money is gone and she has no more candy. So she needs to make sure that she's saving up for bigger purchases and, um, you know, things like that, so... That is a good strategy for teaching her about saving money and budgeting. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other actual steps that people can take, like our listeners can maybe use with their children? Uh, let's see. So um, besides that, I really think piggy banks are something that every child should have. Um, I would say they could probably reach out to me and I could help them, you know, one-on-one. Mm-hmm. With some tips, uh, I have some resources available to me that could potentially help them depending on what their situation is. And they could find me anywhere on social media by going to uh, hashtag Arthur Advises, and they'll, they'll be able to find me on any social media platform. Okay. Yeah, I love it. So how do you uh, plan to balance providing for your child's needs while also teaching them the importance of delayed gratification and responsible spending. And this is probably going to come when she's a little bit older. So do you have a plan for that yet? Uh, so no concrete plan, but I have to let her know that dad can say no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lesson. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, she, she needs to know that. And then also like just being able to tell her that she has to be responsible with her money and that she has to save and budget and if there's something she really wants, she needs to make that a goal. She needs to plan out how she's going to attain that goal, whether if it's paying for, I don't know, a prom dress, you know, whether she's working or getting the allowance, she needs to know that, hey, if I save up this much each month over the course of this amount of time, I'll have enough to put towards that prom dress. Um, so yeah, just explain it to her that you have to have a plan in place. And yeah. um, yeah. So what is a good age to introduce children to financial planning um, in relation to maybe stocks, bonds, you know, Bitcoin, day trading, all those different things? What's a good age, do you think, that they would be able to understand all that and be effective at it? So I... Hmm. So kids are a sponge. You can introduce it to them early, whether they'll be effective at it. I guess it depends on the child, but I probably wouldn't introduce the stock market as well. So you you can't 
actually invest in the stock market until you're legally able to sign contracts. Uh-huh. Um, so in most states, that's 18. Um, and then you could invest in a stock or a mutual fund or whatever. Um, so prior to the age of 18, we could potentially talk about it and play a stock market game. That's actually how I got introduced to the stock market. Um, it was my sophomore year in high school. My economics teacher did the stock market game for the class and I fell in love with the stock market. So, you know, maybe something similar to that as a, you know, young team introduce them to the stock market. That's good. Yeah. I think that's a good age. Yeah. But of course, high school, they have all these different programs. I didn't get that class. I would have totally been all about it to be really honest. So are there any plans to start a financial literacy for kids workshop or master class for maybe kids ages 7 to 14? If there's a demand, I could provide for that demand. Maybe you should put some feelers out there and see what people are really thinking because the way, you know, of course, everything is almost a cashless society like China now. So maybe it might be a market out there if you just ask the question. Okay. You know, a lot of people um, that I know speak very highly of you. So oh. you just never know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know people. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we close, what advice would you give to other new fathers who are about to embark on this fatherhood journey? Um, so the best advice that I could give is to have trust in yourself you know, opinions out there are like buttholes, right? Everybody has one. Yes. (laughs) And you can't, you know, listen to some of everybody. So you just have to really search within yourself and trust yourself. One of the things that helped me besides someone telling me a similar statement is, um, now some people may get upset with me for saying his name, but Bill Cosby has a book on parenting. And I read that book and that was very helpful. It pretty much lets you know that There's so much in society that is going to have an effect on your child that your ability to parent your child, let's say you're a horrible parent, in the grand scheme of things, your influence is so small that it really doesn't matter. And so don't be scared that you're going to mess up. And because, you know, your influence is not as great as you think it's going to be. You want to make sure that you're putting your child in environments that are good for her because her environment is going to be a really influential part in in their life. Well said, you know, and I love what you said about opinions are like buttholes because, (laughs) you know, it's when you get married and you're having children, you get advice from the world and it's all unsolicited. But you have to tune it out. The only person that you need to be in tune with is your partner. That's the person that you're making the child with, your wife, and that's it. Whatever you guys decide is good. Everybody's going to be trying to tell you this, that, and the next. You just need to focus on what you guys have planned for your child and just let everybody else just go by the wayside because too many cooks. Yep. You would say too many cooks spoil the pot. Yep. Exactly. And you definitely don't want people when you have them babysitting your child going against your parenting to infuse their own and then oh, you know, confusing your child. And now your child is questioning you. So yeah. parenting is already a hard job, you know, yeah. and then as they get older and like you said, they are influenced by the world. It gets even harder because 
they're going to question everything you're doing and you're no longer the rule. You're the exception. Yeah. So yeah. Got to be careful what environments you put your child in. Cause yeah, you do not want them thinking that something that you don't agree with is the right way to do things. Like if they're in an environment where let's say you're a household that, you know, doesn't drink, right. You don't want to be surrounded by people that get drunk all the time. Right. Cause exactly. then they're going to think that, Hey, why in my house, I can't drink when everybody else drinks. Right. I mean, it's okay to let your child out in the world. They're going to experience the world, but don't keep them in environments that, you know, you don't want them to end up like. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Well, Arthur, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Now you mentioned your, was it hashtag author advises? Yes. So hashtag A-R-T-H-U-R-A-D-V-I-S-E-S. I'm a horrible speller. I'm a horrible (laughs) speller, but I spelled that right. (laughs) Are there any other social platforms that you're on that people would be able to reach you? So you'll probably see most of my stuff on LinkedIn, um, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Same thing at Arthur Advises. So hashtag Arthur Advises. Um, That's how you'll search for um, like my posts. But um, I have a different handle on each platform. So on LinkedIn, you just search for my name, Arthur Anderson. On Facebook, it is um, at Arthur Advises. And on LinkedIn, it is at Arthur underscore Advises. LinkedIn or Instagram? Oh, Instagram is the third one I said. That's Arthur underscore Advises. Okay. Well, this has been so insightful. I'm really glad that I heard about your fatherhood journey and all the things that you and Deidre have been doing with poor little Evelyn. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to be really screwed up. (laughs) Your your wife is going to be watching this like, did you really say that? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to edit some of this out. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. You're just going to go ahead and show up with flowers. (laughs) No, but it's a journey, you know, and your experience is your experience and nobody can take that away from you. Yeah. You know, so, well, thanks again for holding space with me and we will talk soon. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Thank you for supporting this episode. I hope you've been inspired and motivated so you can elevate your life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you're kept in a loop when a new one drops. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. I want to engage with you, so let me know what you think by giving the episode a rating, writing a review, or leaving a voice message, and I can share them in an upcoming episode. Now remember to also share this with your tribe. Until next time, remember, overcoming adversity not only teaches us a lot about ourselves, others, and life, but also gives us the opportunity to be reminded of our own power and strength. So don't be afraid to share your story. And when you're ready to do so, email saveoursisters2020 at gmail.com.